The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy Transition Podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you live from the floor of the Offshore Technology Conference in Houston, Texas, OTC, for the uh, locals and the people that have been here before. Uh, I am joined, as usual, with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. How are you, sir? I'm great, Josh. Good to be here, as always. As always. I've missed you. I always I enjoy doing these. Our, you know, our first episode we ever did together was a live episode. Do you remember that one? It was. At NAPE. It was on the floor of NAPE. And so we, we are, are. We're pros at this. Yes. No We cannot be distracted by the people mooning the camera or mooning us you or know, whatever it is. You'll notice here, uh, you guys can't see it off camera, but we had to put up some basically rope, velvet rope type thing to block people. There were people just cruising through here. Lights meant nothing to them. Cameras meant nothing to them. We're like... One guy was like, why, why don't you put up a sign? I said, you know, I, like a camera and a light? What kind of sign are we looking for here, man? But uh, it's been great. Um, the show is, I mean, you, you haven't been in many years. So when's the last time you were at an actual OTC? You know, I was thinking about that. It's, it may have been, it's at least, it's probably a decade. And, okay, so it's changed um, quite a bit then. It had, well, the setup's the same. Mm -hmm. There are a number of different companies. What's interesting is... You know, I walked in, there was a big pump jack outside. Like, wait a second, offshore technology conference, these guys haven't figured it out. Maybe they have figured it out, I noticed it. Right. Um, but, you know, the offshore business was so massive for so long, and then shale came along mm -hmm. and uh, sort of eclipsed what was happening offshore. Still very important globally, less important domestically. Big conference, I heard a lot of languages yeah. as I was walking Absolutely. from outside no to inside. No doubt about that. So, it's, it's clearly a representation of the global business. You know, and really there was a period there where everybody kind of joked it was the onshore technology conference because it was, there were so many onshore different companies, frack and, you know, old service equipment type people that it just became very much oriented around mm -hmm. that. So it feels very technical, or digital, I should say, excuse me, this time. Um, the show's a lot bigger this year than it was last year, which I'm, I'm happy as a Houston guy and an oil and gas guy. I'm glad to see that the show is... is Balanced and catching some momentum. Yep. Well, and, and on that note, and we're, we'll bring our guest here in just a second. But on that note, we are actually in the Energy and Transition Pavilion within within the OTC. Mm -hmm. So we're not just at the OTC on some random you know area. There's a special area here. I don't know how many square feet it is, but it's big. There's a lot of companies that have little booths here, and it's packed. It's been absolutely packed. So I think we're going to enjoy. I d we'll touch on this as part of the podcast, but. I'm incur I what I'm basically saying, Dan, is I think you and I are single-handedly changing the industry here with what we're doing and bringing people from, from the oil and gas world over the energy transition and, and getting them to understand how it's important and relevant. They need to pay attention to it. They cannot ignore it. 
So, I mean, I, you looked surprised that I was going to not brag about ourselves I, at the I beginning of this. I won't say single-handedly, but I'll definitely say that energy transition has great momentum um, within the energy community, which is good, because it was adversarial for a while, and now it feels like it's very uh, collaborative okay. or, or at least overlapping. So, Todd Bush, did you hear that transition, how he smoothed out what I said? That was beautiful. Brilliant, wasn't it? It was, that is a... That is a, that's why he's professional. That's why he's the best <laughs> at what he does. So we have a great guest today. Um, it is, it's, it's fun to be able to do. Thank you for doing this live. Todd mm -hmm. Bush, founder of Decarbon Fuse and Fuse Markets. Welcome to the show. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. In a perfect setting inside of the energy transition kind of lobby and corridor right here. It's, it's pretty cool. Excellent to see all these companies and the technology and the people kind of bring, you know, bringing everything together, so that's, uh, it's wonderful to see. So have you ever done a podcast before? Um, I have done podcasts before, but not live. So this is a first. <laughs> so this is uh, it's, it's live exciting. Live meaning in person. In person. Yeah, with, and, with uh, an audience. With, with an audience. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, the good news is they can only hear you out of the speaker behind me. So if you don't freak okay. out, if the, these people, they look at you, they can't hear anything you're saying. So <laughs> the ones great. behind us can hear you. So, well, again, thanks for being our guest today. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to know that uh, we're throwing you on in your first live first studio live audience. podcast. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that I think the audience should do while we're talking to you is it gives them a chance if they're at their computers to to look up and see what, what you do. So mm -hmm. let's it's a weird place to start before you even talk about who you are, but that way folks can be perusing uh, your website. So yeah. tell us your website address and then we'll dig into who you are and what Decarbon Fuse does. Perfect, so uh, go check out decarbonfuse.com. I have a newsletter around CCUS, hydrogen, and a little bit of electrification and really thinking of it from the industrial and energy standpoint. So obviously, you know, depending on the numbers, uh, you know, a third of emissions come from industrial and energy sources. So that to me is the big opportunity with not only energy transition, but just decarbonization in general. Great. Well, Todd, take us, take us back. First, the earth cooled, then along the way, you were born. But um, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you grew up. Yeah, excellent. How, how, what's life before decarbon fuse? Right, right. So I grew up in a small little town in Colorado called Ray in the northeast corner. So born there, um, lived there for a little while. My parents worked at a small oil and gas company uh, out in a kind of Yuma field up in northeast Colorado. And then that brought me to Dallas. So grew up in Dallas, uh, ended up going to Texas A&M. And in between at Texas A&M, switched schools and played a little basketball and then came back to A&M and actually finished out my degree. And a couple of years later, then went on to uh, Rice University and, and got an MBA from, from Rice. So definitely uh, moved around a little bit, but finally landed in Houston. And I feel like, um, you know, I married a native Houstonian, so I feel like a Houstonian yeah. now. And um, enjoying, kind of enjoying everything that the city offers. That's great. And so you, you have oil and gas in your blood. Um, <clears throat> you're an Aggie. Mm -hmm. You have to tell us. He's a basketball player, clearly. Yeah. But so, what was your little side jaunt to play basketball? Duke or something like oh, that? Oh yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> no. So I uh, tried to walk on at A and M. It was clear it wasn't going to happen, and went to uh, Southwestern University for a year. 
played, got to travel around the kind of southeast U.S. playing kind of, you know, Division Two, Division Three basketball. Got it out of my system. Okay. And uh, enjoyed that for uh, for that quick year. Yeah. Realized I didn't want to study. I didn't want to graduate with a you know an economics degree. Wanted something a little more uh, kind of business or statistics or data oriented. So went back to A and M uh, and finished up there. Okay. Nice. Yep. You don't hear that too often. I wanted to be a little bit more statistics oriented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a good a good podcast. Anybody that wants statistics oriented, we're going to get some great data. It, and their, his website reflects this, by the way. It's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very data driven for sure. Yeah, yes. yeah. So decarbon fuse again, but get us get us to decarb from mm-hmm. school to decarbon fuse between sure. there and here. Yeah. So I ended up kind of starting off uh, left. A&M and really focused on financial software, uh, ended up working for a small, um, another kind of rice grad who really focused on loan and lease software. It was my first kind of entry into kind of the business world, knew that I wanted to get back to oil and gas. I was working in Houston and literally traveling kind of east coast to west coast. And so we decided, um, my wife and I at the time decided I had to figure out a way back into oil and gas and, and really be in Houston. So ended up uh, working for a small consulting firm that helped me get recruited into Chevron and ran their digital, I'll call them digital oil field programs, but everything from health and safety to reservoir optimization to production optimization um, type of programs at Chevron and enjoyed like dealing with the different asset teams and different personalities and ways of kind of uh, ways of working, I suppose. And so in, internal applications at Chevron. Yeah, internal applications. So, okay. um, you know, water, alt, and let's see, kind of water alternating gas tools, water flood tools, um, really focused on some of the software, but also the lean kind of Sigma elements of that. So that's kind of the statistic piece of that that I kind of bring mm-hmm. into not only the conversation, but also bring into some of the projects that I work on now. And while I was there, got a got more into kind of the economics of these individual projects, what they looked like from an oil and gas perspective, what it looked like from EOR perspective, which I thought was fascinating, and ended up uh, getting a little bit of an entrepreneurial bug and uh, decided to leave and join a smaller company um, called Rig Data that was all around kind of drilling information mm-hmm. and helped launch a, a few products. And I went there to help the owners find an exit they didn't want to exit, uh, so I ended up going out on my own, starting Energent uh, with uh, a friend uh, that I'd known for a long time, and he's another Rice grad and UT grad, and so we ended up building out Energent with a lot of information, a lot of data uh, for kind of the underserved or what we thought kind of underserved oil, oil field service supply chain. So worked a lot with drilling contractors, frack companies, frack sand companies, uh, that whole logistics piece. And we sold the business in 2017. And then uh, I stayed with the company. To one of these Uh, data aggregator types? Yes, Westwood Global uh, Energy, which they were a private equity backed uh, kind of platform that wanted to bring together both offshore, onshore, and have kind of a global perspective on it. So ended up doing that and stayed there for about four years. And during that time, obviously, there's a lot of discussion around emissions, this movement from how do we tell our ESG story as a service company or a supplier, 
and so got involved in a number of those projects that we're looking at. Uh, how do we how do we tell this not only ESG story but also deliver value through kind of a, a low carbon or kind of reduced emission perspective? So got involved in in those projects and knew kind of as I was leaving that I wanted to stay in that in that area and had some contacts back. Uh, from a Chevron days that I talked to around CO2 and EOR and really wanted to explore the CCUS space. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my time now is really digging in on uh, carbon capture and, and, in my opinion, kind of how it underpins so a lot of the energy what time, transition. So 17 you sold, you mm -hmm. stayed there? Till 21. Okay, so yeah. this is what we're talking. This new venture is about a year something old. Yeah, just, just brand new. Okay, yep. great. Great. So that brings us to Decarbon Fuse. Mm -hmm. And um, so tell us about the business. What's it do? Yeah. So right now the the newsletter um, is decarbonfuse.com. So you can go on, look at uh, kind of company sustainability data. Um, there's a carbon capture kind of project information portion to that. And obviously a daily and weekly uh, newsletter. And so that I have a small team working on really just trying to grow the newsletter. It's a couple thousand people right now. And uh, on the side and along the way, uh, had a vision for developing some other uh, tools and potentially doing consulting around the energy transition. Uh -huh. So those are actually kind of through Fuse Markets, which is the entity, not the necessarily the site. And so through that, um, I have been doing and kind of building a team uh, for carbon capture, primarily carbon capture consulting. So looking at it from uh, from source to sink, how do you characterize the emissions? What does the storage look like from a geologic perspective? How do you get that CO2 you know, to storage, transportation, and the facilities and the wells that are all involved? And then bringing that all together with kind of the economics mm -hmm. and evaluating it for you know, whether that's a cement company or an ethanol facility or or even an, a midstream operator, right? So you're going to work on the consulting side of the business. You would work for someone who owns poor space or someone who's an emitter or both? Both, potentially. Okay, got it. And and the newsletter, What uh, is the purpose there to just educate or is it a, an advertising model that's kind of, kind of a standalone business or... What's the what's the thought process there? Yeah, it started off mostly education because there was a lot of people, especially in in my network, that weren't uh, too aware of some of the carbon capture and hydrogen technology in the projects, and so that I think element is going to be um, free for quite a while, and then there'll be kind of a monetization angle there down the road, but not too focused on that. I think the um, consulting and kind of the other projects will help kind of fund fund that and keep it going. Are you working with anybody now? Yes, so we have, um, so just on the team that we're kind of working together on the consulting side, a former uh, chief engineer from QEP, his name is PK Pandy, um, and then other folks uh, on the geology side where we can actually conduct the entire project. So if it's the reservoir engineering piece or potentially uh, really digging into kind of the pore space and valuing the subsurface side, we can get into that. And um, trying to do the, the economics around all of, all of those projects. So one of the things that 
comes up a lot right now is costs and what does that look like for not only just capturing the carbon but also transporting, storing, and sequestering it. You know, we've had a, you said you'd listened to a couple of our previous podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's been a big subject for us in the last 12 months. Yeah. Um, I mean, is any of the projects that we've had or that you've seen in the last 12 months that you're like, hey, that's exactly what we should be doing or that's a position for us? Mm -hmm. Yes, so I think for some of the companies right now, uh, the ethanol facilities definitely feel like the first, I'll say first mover with carbon capture and there's a number of projects. Um, so for example, kind of looking at or tracking over 160 projects in North America, I think that number is 160 low. carbon capture projects. Carbon capture yep. projects. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that number is really low because there's several projects in there that really can't talk about yet mm -hmm. and that aren't announced and that are at the early, early stages of kind of feasibility. So I think that number is going to go up dramatically by the end of the year. And then especially with uh, a number of the CCUS projects where they're looking at feasibility, they're looking at the bottlenecks. Um, you hear a lot of the common kind of bottlenecks around the regulatory environment environment and, and really understanding kind of the costs and the detail around it. Yeah. Todd, when we, so we keep hearing emitters are one of the big, you know, there's plenty of poor space in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, plenty of folks controlling that poor space saying, hey, bring your CO2 here, and that the emitters have been the slow ones to move. You mentioned ethanol. That's because ethanol produces CO2. You don't have to capture anything, so it's a low cost if you will, source of, mm -hmm. of CO2. Um, talk to us a little bit about just how you see this timing gap between the emitters and the, the sequesterers, if you will. Mm -hmm. So the timing gap, especially thinking about the regulatory side, yep. um, we're seeing, I'll, I'll use round kind of months, but anywhere between 12 and 24 months, to get a class six well permit kind of through the process. Uh, now that could change dramatically as Louisiana gets a little closer for their primacy and controlling that, uh, controlling that process a little more along with the EPA. Um, I think with the ethanol facility specifically in the Midwest, you have the regulatory environment and a number of, a number of projects that don't want to be first so mm -hmm. you have some aggregators that are, are, are looking at the pipeline side and, and even a number of facilities that have a, I'll say, are near um, CO2, EOR type of fields. So there's opportunity, there's existing infrastructure uh, or a little bit of in existing infrastructure uh, for some of those ethanol fillies to move from, you know, thinking about a project to doing it within the next call it two to three years. What's the hesitancy to not want to be first? I think that capturing the carbon today with known technology gives everyone, and merely puts everyone at ease, but the, the ownership and the structures of a lot of these companies on the ethanol side, and you could actually start dissecting each emitter and each company uh, this way as well, you know, the large companies that, like um, Poet uh, on, on the ethanol side, they're already bringing together all their facilities to, to run a, a large project. They're aggregating project. their they're own. They're aggregating yeah. their own. So other smaller facilities, I think, are going to watch to see how it's done, mm. maybe even go with some of the same suppliers, same vendors, 
and there's certainly a number of former kind of oil and gas and, and energy folks that are talking to them, helping them through the process. You know, we just had, uh, <clears throat> I had to step in for uh, Jim Wickland, our friend from an, uh, on another podcast this mm. morning, and they had NOV on mm. their podcast and talking about oil and gas and a couple of different things. And honestly, they wanted to talk about energy transition and, and the role that they played. And you mentioned oil and gas is just, they see, and to Dan's point earlier on this on this podcast, you know, NOV is playing a big role from an equipment standpoint. We've had some of our other guests on there from the equipment standpoint. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you're seeing, what's the word, I'm, a, an eagerness from, from this crowd to step in and be a part of what you're, you know, the, the equipment side, certainly the equipment side, like they're trying to figure out how can they transition whatever type of equipment they have now mm -hmm. into where do these things go for the next run and, and the next projects, right? Yeah. So is it really just, because I don't, it's got to be some of it technology and equipment at the same time. Is it also policy that slows us down or is it money? I mean, I'm, or all of the above. Yeah, policy and money for sure. Yeah. So um, we we did a study for kind of Gulf Coast Coast storage assessment and mapped out like what the potential projects could be, what the scenarios that you know different field development plans could look like, and what that would mean for you know everything from pipelines to wells to CO2 compression. And it's fascinating to see kind of the knock-on effect of a couple projects, and that eagerness is definitely there. Mm -hmm. So we're anticipating as these projects get built out, there is going to be a supply chain bottleneck. There is going to be a, uh, I'll say, a run uh, or a push for certain types of equipment along the supply chain. But in the end, I think they'll work that work through that um, and make sure, um, keep you know, trying to keep the cost down and trying to get the project delivered, I think will be the most important thing. So um, hopefully that answers your question. I think the policy is one that is always going to come up. And I know there's a little concern about the IRA and 45Q and how do you qualify and making sure the not only the emissions but uh, the CO2 sequestration side is um, kind of all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted for that. But uh, that feels like that's becoming more understood. And then as more states gain primacy, that will help kind of it's not going to be a, a flood of Class 6 wells, but um, at least in Louisiana, hopefully Texas in the future, potentially um, other states will begin getting that primacy as well. When you think about, when you think about how the dollars get split up, the IRA was, was clearly a big deal in terms of putting mm -hmm. more money into the system. Um, so do you think emitters want to capture a piece of that? And how big a piece do you think they can capture mm -hmm. when we think about a, you know, an $85, 45Q tax credit? Um, how are we going to stretch that money across the various emitter, trans transportation, storage, sequestration, et cetera? Yeah, great question. So there's, uh, just going back to the ethanol side for a bit, there's definitely some different business models emerging. So you have some that are, trying to do it themselves and, and just partnering with the, I'll say the subsurface team that can help with the facility development and uh, own that entire value chain and, and get all the tax credits. So they want equity the whole way. Equity the whole way um, to kind of this CCS as a service model, 
which would be more of um, we'll take the CO2 from you and we're going to probably take the majority of those credits and we're going to handle everything else to uh, several companies doing some you know, variation of a JV uh, where there's going to be joint ownership. And those definitely seem to be the common ones um, that, that are at least coming out in the early projects. So, so you're saying the CO2 emitter is rather than just handing it off and saying, okay, either give me a slice of these credits or I'll pay you something, they're saying, oh, wait a minute, there's money here, and so I'm going to own a piece of all of it. I want to own part of the pipeline, or I want to own part of the end storage facility. In some cases, yes. Interesting. Do they have to have a lot of volumes to do that? They do, and it's not, I think that will be only a handful of companies that do that, versus kind of the CCS as a service uh, yeah. approach. Yeah, and, and Todd, one of the things that, so I forget the names, but we got a big, CO2 pipeline being built from the Midwest, I think, to North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And then there's one going south. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I don't remember the names of either of them, mm -hmm. which bad on me. But um, isn't there anything, is there no geology nearby that can do this, you know, in the Midwest? There's definitely some. You think of Kansas, a little bit in Nebraska. Um, there's potential there. I think the amount of storage is what, uh, I believe it's uh, Summit Carbon that's going north to uh -huh. North Dakota. Uh -huh. I think moving the project along, they already had access to a sequestration well. Uh -huh. That was probably appealing. Uh, the other amounts of storage, whether they're saline aquifers or even kind of depleted oil fields, they're not the same volume that you can get in, in other areas, especially mm -hmm. um, especially Gulf Coast, uh, yeah. if you're comparing there. So you just can't put enough volume away. And mm -hmm. so you can spend, I think, Summit's $4 billion or $3 billion. It's a yeah. big... Yeah, I feel like it just keeps growing. Yes, it's, it's billions. Um, so they're obviously making a play that this is going to be a big, a big and long-term market. Mm -hmm. And I think the other one to keep in mind that's interesting is uh, Tallgrass Midstream, where they're taking a form, the I guess a natural gas uh, pipeline, converting it, and then uh, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly where they're sequestering, but um, likely in Wyoming or Nebraska, uh -huh. and then connecting some of those um, facilities um, to to their existing kind of pipeline network. Okay, and when do you think when do you think we see our first meaningful CO2 sequestered mm -hmm. in the United States? Probably, um, there's some being sequestered now. It's not high volume, but I would say in the next 18 to 24 months, as some of these companies hit first injection and can actually show, okay, we can, we can go um, and, and do some high volume uh, with this one, you know, we'll call it one sequestration site. Okay, so late 24, early 25. Yeah, that's probably optimistic okay. on my part, but okay. I think there's a, there's a good path to get there. What would pessimistic be then? I mean, just it, it never ends or it goes three years, four years? I mean, what do you... Yeah, the, one of the statistics that uh, no one likes talking too much about is um, if you look back at the carbon capture projects that were announced prior to 2020, 60% uh, of them were canceled or put on hold or pushed out. So 
if you look at more of a pessimistic view, I would say closer, probably closer to 2030. Um, okay. You know, any meaningful thing, yep. any meaningful CO2 getting sequestered there. You know, but looking at your website and, and talking about just the different policies that are in place now, there's a lot more incentive than there was in 2020. Mm -hmm. And then, two, I, you know, I was looking at, again, your website. Is that an aggregate that you have there, or did you build that yourself? I, if, if you... You built that yourself? Yeah, we, yeah, we built it, um, built it all, and basically designed it and pulled everything together. Can you explain so. to the audience what I'm talking about, just in case they didn't look it up, real yeah. quick? Yeah. So on the website, you can basically look up any um, public company within industrial and kind of energy, and cover a little bit of mining as well. And that'll give you a view of all the EPA facilities and a, a little rating around uh, water, chemicals, and emissions, as well as their sustainability targets. And so really the thought there is, what are these companies saying they're going to do? Right. And then being able to connect them to the projects that are actually being funded. Yeah, because I guess you have, you're looking there through their reports, obviously, and what their, five, mm -hmm. I don't I'm like five-year statements, 10 years, here's mm -hmm. where we want to be carbon neutral, carbon positive, et cetera, right? And, and you're pulling that out and then tracking how they're doing along the way? Uh, we're not tracking how we're, we're trying to track the projects. Okay. Uh, so as they announce projects and are actually completing, whether that's a, you know, a, a sustainable aviation fuel investment or maybe they're going to do something around hydrogen or something around carbon capture, then begin connecting the dots that way. So the reason I'm bringing that up in tandem with the first part is it just feels like that's a, that's a, a spreadsheet, whatever you want to call it, that didn't exist three, four years ago, that people are now paying attention to on a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder, like, the two-year, you know, optimistic view versus maybe a, what were you in, 23, six, seven-year mm -hmm. pessimistic view. I just wonder if people can, if it, it just doesn't feel the same way this time as it might a couple of years ago. And that's what I'm, you know, I just feel like there's a lot more attention on these things now than, than yes. obviously there ever has been. Yes, absolutely. I mean, to, to the point where we're sitting right now. Yeah, and so I've had a couple conversations with different folks in the DOE, and I'm still waiting for a loan to come out on the on the DOE side for mm -hmm. one of these projects uh, and hear about that. I know they are, they're definitely funding kind of pilots and funding other, other things, but there's an enormous amount of funds available for uh, either project funding, either even equipment manufacturing related to carbon capture, um, so I'd like to hear more on that side to kind of build out the supply chain, but that hasn't quite happened yet, but I'm, you know, I'm still optimistic that it's going to pretty soon. Okay. So what you guys are doing is helping one side or the other figure out how to move a project ahead. Um, we've talked a lot about regulatory. Is that the biggest stumbling block and then so let's set that aside for a minute. What do you find is the, the kind of the area of focus that companies need the most help with? Is it, is it identifying a good counterparty? Is it quantifying their own you know, CO2 emissions? What's the, where do they need the most help? Yeah, um, I'll start maybe from the, um, from the source side and yeah. the, the missions. I think um, the big concern there is cost. So moving, uh, in helping companies move from kind of a, a level five cost estimate, if you will, down the chain to get more certainty around what they're going to do. I think that's a, a key piece of it that a lot of the engineering firms are beginning to get, um, you know, get their front end design kind of work done. So we're seeing more and more of that. And then as you kind of move through the value chain, 
The other piece is the sequestration in the regulatory process. I think you can't um, can't really talk about carbon capture without going into detail on that front because there's a lot of uh, back and forth that has to take place um, even though even with people that are very familiar with working with um, class one, two injection wells, uh, class six takes the you know you want to uh, look at the pore space, you have to do the plume modeling a certain way and then that's the kind of standard on the plume, plume modeling a certain way explain what that means. Yeah, so on uh, kind of from a subsurface perspective, and you have, you're going to be tracking your first injection for that particular well, and the plume modeling is, is essentially going to show and demonstrate to the EPA or the regulatory authority how that CO2 spreads uh, across time. So what does it look like in five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, and at each different regulatory kind of, uh, I'll say stage gate, if you will, you have to do that with the EPA. And let's say an ethanol facility um, wants to take advantage of LCFS and is doing something with doing something with the fuel side. So then you'd have to go to California and show uh, was CARB and show your plume model in a certain way so that you get that authority comfortable with uh, with everything that you're doing. So. Mm-hmm. There's multiple steps in, in kind of appeasing different stakeholders in the value chain. How can they show what's going to happen to your, I mean, I, I guess it's just, I mean, you're a stats guy, right? I mean, how, is, how are they showing this and modeling this out over that period of time? Yeah, there's, I mean, on the subsurface side, especially thinking about, you know, reservoir modeling and fracture modeling yes. from the oil and gas side, it is uh, very similar. So you're going to see the companies that are exceptionally uh, qualified from the oil and gas side on reservoir modeling, really working kind of on the um, sequestration side for plume modeling as right. well. But and yeah, it's hard to imagine kind of that, <laughs> I mean, that 200 year outlook. Like, you know, right? I can, in my head, I'm envisioning this, but I'm like, okay, I can get a five or 10 year deal and then, tw- you know, 20. And all of a sudden you're thinking, wait, 100 to 200 years out, things move. Things change. How do, there's just a lot of math involved in this that I'm sure that I don't understand, but. Yeah, that's what I'm curious is to think about what that actually looks like. Yep. And then that brings up a lot of risks, uh, too, in the conversation. So if it is a depleted kind of oil field, then what does that look like? Is there potential seepage uh, back through the subsurface, through some of those wells? Is it an aquifer? And maybe it's more secure and that it's capped, if you will. Um, so definitely different models for different types of are, fields. Are any of those concerns part of the delay? That they just is that a big portion of it? Like, hey, keep showing me and showing me until I believe it. There's a little bit of that, but there's also the um, just the back and forth and the the amount of kind of risk identification. I'll say risk identification plus um, preparation plans, as well as uh, for every class six well, you're going to have to like, what are you going to do if if you have to shut in or um, you know, reclaim the property or reclaim the land. There's all those contingencies that are laid out in, um, you know, throughout the kind of regulatory process. And the the emitter cares about this because if they give it to somebody, they put it in the ground and it comes back out, do they lose the credits or do they just lose credibility? I kind of like 
credits or credibility. I'm, we'll I'm going to use that one. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'll uh, write that one down. Yeah. The the liability side is now you start looking at it from a state state to state perspective. Okay. Uh, so some states are saying uh, liability they'll take on liability after a certain period of time. Whereas the state will. The state will. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, um, others are saying the, the company or the current owner has liability. So that's another piece on uh, kind of the state regulation side and state law side that's going to come to play without a doubt. Yeah. Sounds so, a lot like, a, what is it, they call them annuities or uh, for the plugged and abandoned wells where they have to secure these for the long term as well. I mean, to make sure they're locked. ARO, abandonment liabilities. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean... We've, we've we've got a lot of history in the oil and gas business. We don't have a lot of history right, right. in the carbon sequestration business, although it's it's pretty similar. Doesn't right? sound like the leap is too far. Right? No, exactly. Um, I'm I'm going to jump around a little bit. So you've got it, so fused markets is when I hear that I think about things like trading credits or something like that. Is that Am I stretching too far, or is that just what you're calling the, the consulting business? Uh, that's essentially what, right now, I'm just, uh, I have an entity, and that is uh, consulting through that. Okay. So uh, there's, a, there's a possibility down the road that may separate the consulting business completely from the carbon fuse, mm -hmm. but um, right now, I think it's working pretty well because we get to um, attract people in and then really have more discussions uh, around what specific angle within carbon caption is there, there they have they want help with, mm -hmm. and and are you a now we can can zoom out a little bit. Are you a a big net zero guy? You think we can get there, or is this is this a, a, an exercise in futility? How do you think about sort of the big picture goals that that you know the world has around mm -hmm. carbon? Yeah, so I think the the specific goals, um, without really digging into the economics on all the projects and all the countries involved, I feel like the the stated goals that are out there are are good to shoot for, but are not practical yet. And there's just a world that demands energy, and energy is increasing, and so. I look at it as like this energy transition is bringing, bringing to bear new forms of, or maybe getting more creative around new forms of energy. So hopefully that answers. Well, you, you called it a yes and. <laughs> yeah, is that? Is that yeah. yeah, that's basically, you know, a lot of, it's interesting kind of sitting at the, the, this intersection between climate technology and energy and oil and gas and some of these other, I'll say, sources you get a lot of conversations around we can't fund fossil fuels we can't do this we can't go after you know some new technologies that's out there and my perspective is innovation is going to make this a reality if it's 2050 or 2060 or whenever it is mm -hmm. we need innovation all across energy across so many industries that it's uh, it, it's going to it's going to take time and capital to get there. What do you, I mean, do you consider yourself an energy guy or what do you consider yourself? Yeah, uh, I mean, I've kind of <laughs> come from it from an oil and gas perspective and energy. I, I think mostly uh, now getting in 
to the emission side a little more, working with uh, different industries, uh, I realized that there's this angle that if you talk within anybody at OTC, uh, they're going to have a level of IQ about energy that just doesn't exist outside of the energy industry. And so whenever I get a chance to talk to anyone, I try to encourage them either with with information or stories or data mm -hmm. um, to take note of how critical energy is to everyday life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Todd, we zoned in hard on, on carbon capture because we've done a lot on the podcast about that. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned hydrogen early on. Mm -hmm. And then a second ago, you mentioned economics and the energy transition. And when I think about hydrogen, I think about economics that aren't there yet. Do you agree or disagree? Tell us how you think about hydrogen. Yep, completely agree, and I think it is all about the demand. So where is market demand coming from for hydrogen? There's certainly an opportunity, I think, if, um, if I was just, my own opinion is the kind of class, you know, I'll say class three trucks uh, seem like a good opportunity for, for hydrogen. You have to develop some infrastructure, uh, but for, all the uses of hydrogen, uh, the danger of trying to do everything seems very real. And the economics aren't there for all the different use cases. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's still still a ways out, but it would be it would be um, it would be nice to see outside of just ports using it in California and a little bit of industrial gas, it'd be good to see some demand come through. Yeah. It would be good to see that demand. What's going to be the catalyst? Is it is there some technology breakthrough we need to see? Is it regulation? Is it you know we've we've done three bucks a kilogram at the IRA? Should it be more than that? I haven't dug into some of the um, regulation side on hydrogen as much as I have on carbon capture, but from what I can tell from uh, a couple companies that I talked to is that they feel like the regulation is there. They feel like they can make the economics work with the current regulatory environment, but they're really trying to find the offtake agreements to either seal seal their project or, or really get funding. So that's that's really the reason why I go back to kind of the band, whether that's a individual kind of offtake agreement or a new segment really pulling kind of hydrogen forward. You know, Josh, it feels like we hear offtake agreements. We hear that a lot mm -hmm. in our podcast. And um, I guess I'm coming more and more to the conclusion, government's pushing this hard, right? And, the, and industry is trying to, it's trying to react and come to, come to the decarbonization. Economically. Yeah, and, and it feels like, um, the line in the sand is I'll spend a little money on spec, but if I'm going to spend a lot of money, I've got to have that contract. And, and the, the reality of this is that it's going to, it's going to force innovation mm -hmm. to get costs down because we're just not going to see widespread adoption on the hope, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of I wish that politicians talk mm -hmm. about and business is going to spend a little money on I wish, but they're not going to spend, you know, the trillions that we hear about. 
um, they're going to wait for some sort of contract. Uh, that contract may be government-backed or not, but... Um, I think it's going to have to be. There's, either, there's too much short-cycle decisions being made, right? And you have, with big money, it's, it's a lot of money to invest in, uh, what you call it, hope earlier? Or a wish? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's too much. We, we, had, we had a guest on here uh, a few weeks ago, Michael Carney. Mm -hmm. They raised money Dr. on Mike. a... Dr. Mike. <laughs> um, they raised money with a 15-year time frame. Right. And when you do that, you can make some really long cycle decisions. The problem is they're talking about raising millions mm -hmm. and investing millions, and this process involves trillions. Mm -hmm. So you got to get orders of magnitude mm -hmm. changes, thinking longer cycle, and you just haven't had it yet. So Well, and again, I think it goes back to what Todd was saying. I mean, if you get, you get one, <coughs> excuse me, one, it works. There's going to be a lot. I mean, one of... The first one of anything is really difficult, right? You get one of something that works properly and does it. You're going to have a lot of people going, all right, let's learn whatever lessons that was. Let's figure out how to make it more economically and quickly and et cetera. And I think that's what turns this thing. I mean, it's all turning. It, it just really is to the point of we were joking earlier about, the, you know, kind of bragging on, on ourselves or me while I was doing it. But, like, all of this is shifting. I mean, the, the, these conversations, I just I really do feel like the tipping point does start to come to where, you know, right now you have, a, you have the politicians, and Todd, we'll, I guess we'll let you back on in a minute here, but, you know, it's like you have these politicians talking about things that they hope and want and wish, but you, the, the average guy and girl is starting to get it, and they're starting to see, like, okay, this is good for long term. This can make some substantial difference. We are making 200-year decisions. What does it really take? And, I mean, you know, trillions of dollars is a lot of money, but is, go back to our very first guest that I, one of the first guests was a Jim Hughes that he talked about just how much money was required and then how short we're falling every mm -hmm. single year. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot. Okay, we will let you back in. You, you mentioned uh, <laughs> you think a little bit about electrification. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about that. Yeah, so I got um, involved in some of the early electric frack uh, fleets Ooh. and got to see some of those up close and personal. I'd like to hear that. Yeah, so um, did some projects for companies that were evaluating uh, how to power uh, eFracs, and then also other companies that were trying to do completely different approaches on the either the blender or um, how much water was being used mm -hmm. uh, for for the frac job. And so both of those were kind of electric angles mm -hmm. uh, for kind of equipment in the field. And companies like Evolution. Yep. Well, sir. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> companies like that. There's there's a handful. Okay. Yeah. Just trying to put it together. Here. Yeah. Uh, even even companies like maybe Liberty that were a little sure. slower, and other companies that were doing things like uh, dual fuel um, uh, equipment right. to reduce the carbon intensity. And so. Because that world seems to have taken off recently. And they, they're all kind of doing their own thing now at some level or another. Yes, I, I wish I knew, you know, a little more like where everyone was right now. But it, it felt like for so long they were like, oh, here's, there's a fleet in Eagleford and yeah. Marcellus. Yeah, well, and Evolution, what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah. 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 And so uh, it's good, they're it's all good to hear. They're all messing around in it now. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. So uh, just on the electrification front, there seems like numerous opportunities, whether you're talking about compression 
Um, and so you could have an electric uh, CO2 compressor at a carbon capture site. You can look at it from a midstream operator perspective and, and figuring out how to uh, reduce their carbon intensity along their pipeline. Um, so really thinking of more on from an operational side, not necessarily um, EVs or, or mm -hmm. anything like that. Mm -hmm. Do you have competitors? I'm sure there's on the on the newsletter side. There's a lot of different people poking and looking at energy transition from uh, different angles. There's certainly the traditional uh, energy research firms. Uh, I've come across a lot of individual. Um, kind of newsletters that are starting to get subscribers and monetize that view, whether that's individuals that are looking at just one piece of the value chain or, or trying to dig in. So uh, there's, I think, a, quite a few competitors, but we're really trying to differentiate is if we keep that as kind of the, you know, the marketing arm, if you will, then what can we do on the back end for new products, for consulting, and, and really deliver some of the some of these large projects that are being talked about, uh, trying to influence that and be a part of some of the, the larger ones that are going to get across the finish line soon. Mm -hmm. Todd, what's the, what do you think are the five, three, five, seven, whatever it is, what should our listeners be watching to see progress, whether it's CCUS or anything on the energy transition? What do you think are the top five yeah, things to great watch? Question. Yeah, so, Fascinating. Um, I think there's so many. I could come up with like 35, I think. Oh, um, yeah. But I'll maybe just say a couple um, yeah. that, that I think are top of mind. I'm watching very closely the public companies on the energy side because right now, and specifically oil and gas, they are going to continue to be, uh, they're going to face challenges in, in kind of community engagement, but they're also increasing their investment. So as we can see those companies go from they're just talking to doing and walking the walk, I think that will lay a good, um, just a good platform for other people to follow. So, uh, it's, you know, one interesting piece, whether, whether you like it or not, the, the direct air capture launch by Oxy is one good step. Like, yes, this is a big marketing push, but also they're breaking ground in their building. This uh -huh. was the thing that was on 60 Minutes last week. You were probably busy dominating the Vegas Oilman's tournament, tournament <laughs> but uh, she was on 60 Minutes last last Sunday mm -hmm. talking about this. Occidental CEO, yes, Vicky thank you. Sorry. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. I'm speaking like I like she's sitting here with us right yep. now. Yep. 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 So I'm uh, keeping in touch with a, a few folks on the direct air capture side that are you know looking at new technology, new ways of capture, all that, and it's pretty it's interesting when you can start. Factoring in, oh, they're talking about classics welds, and you, you know, what is what does this mean for the difference between class one and class six? And so, that is um, that's good to see. And so, those public companies that have um, have the capital and can show the discipline to actually go through with a lot of these plans, I think is great. So, obviously, a little biased, but Chevron doing the same thing. I think there'll be other companies that come along from the public uh, company side to help change the community, change the kind of stakeholder perspective of that. Well, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but do you think that Vicky did a good job explaining that to the a national audience on Sunday? 
I didn't watch the full thing. Okay. I only saw a little clip. Um, but I would imagine, yes, just thinking and seeing her speak to other audiences. Okay. Uh, I would imagine. I mean, she's a pro. Yeah. She's excellent. Did you think she did a good job? Well, yes, I did. But, but at the same time, like, there's, there was feedback that it wasn't quite explained, uh, that it didn't make it didn't wasn't the shining light on that I thought that people were talking about that it looked on the oil and gas industries. That's why I was asking mm -hmm. from your perspective, like what was your take on it? But um, we'll just I, maybe I'll put a link. <laughs> so there you go. Could, yeah. Let our go, let our listeners decide. To, yeah, yeah. And then okay. I'll and, go and, to and, the. You're not putting too much of a pressure on that question because, like I said, I know that's. But yeah, keep going. Yeah. So if I was to go to the other kind of end of the spectrum, um, I grew up born kind of northeast Colorado, there's a, a couple carbon capture facilities, ethanol facilities, uh, where Carbon America is actually running the carbon capture and sequestration. So I think if you have these two ends of the spectrum, the public companies that are moving forward with some of these large multi-billion dollar projects, as well as other companies that are you know sing double hitting singles and doubles, if you will, on uh, the smaller facilities, then we can actually see progress. And right now, with you know 160 plus projects and only a handful that are moving, uh, what seems like moving quickly, um, I think it'll do a lot for community perception, kind of stakeholder engagement at the local level, and a broader understanding of, oh yes, this is a good thing. We're reducing emissions, and we can show kind of those results. Mm -hmm. Todd, what else should we hit before we do the lightning round? What other things, when you think I about... I this was the lightning round. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's all a lightning round. This is a super lightning round coming up. But um, anything else that you think is important for, for our listeners to know about what's happening in energy transition, carbon capture, et cetera, the stuff that you're, you're living day to day? I think from the carbon capture side, uh, especially if you have questions around the costs or how to begin looking and thinking about a project, uh, definitely reach out to me. I th think there's so much out there right now where part of that is just education. So we're doing kind of workshops around just educating teams. And then the flip side of that is actually digging into, oh, how do I characterize those emissions? What does the geology look like? What does the transportation look like? And so that angle um, I'm excited about because it's fun to talk to you know, midstream operators and ethanol producers and cement pr producers. So you get a, get a broad range of folks that are looking into this. Mm -hmm. okay. I, I see a couple of people that have been around. Do you have some of your team out here today with you as well? Uh, I don't actually. No. Okay, so we just have interested parties yeah. sitting yeah. there listening, okay. Yeah. Hanging out. What, and before we do, what position did you play? Oh, I was uh, kind of three, four in basketball. Okay, so I couldn't dunk on you either. <laughs> You're not dunking on anybody, Josh. <laughs> Only intellectually dunking. Oof, I don't know. It's Not a, physically are, dunking. These are tough conversations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, our listeners today have a real treat from the perspective of, for the first time in the history of yes. the Energy and Transition podcast, the lightning round questions were put together by you. Yes. So, if they're better, <laughs> everybody should let us know so you can do them from now on. Or, or if they're equally as good than what I know is we can True. we can, we can, we can share the responsibilities, yes. yes. But we also don't read anything other than positive email anyway, so it's perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Only show me the good reviews. That's right. <laughs> yeah. right. And and um, Todd, the the rules of the lightning round are really simple. 
You don't get to have big expansive answers. It's generally just yes or no. And we'll, we'll, um, it helps people know a little bit more about you in, in a very short period of time. There you go, awesome. You want right, to kick ready? it off? Morning person or night owl? Night owl. Oh man. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Beach or the mountains? Mm. Mountains. Does the Ukraine-Russia conflict continue into 2024? Yes. Summer or winter? Winter. Mm. Uh, S&P 500 for the rest of the year. From here, uh, bullish or bearish? From here. And from here is about 4,100 S&P. Uh, bullish. Good positive. Cash or crypto? Cash. Road trip or flying? Road trip. Um, and let's go wine or beer? Beer. Mm, he hesitated. Whiskey. I was thinking yeah. whiskey because that's my, that would yeah. be my choice. What's that last one there? And, and In, then, Instagram look, or TikTok? Okay. Yeah, that's fine. That was fine. good. Yeah. Instagram or TikTok? Yeah. Neither. Yeah, you're a Twitter guy. Yes. So I, figured, I took that out because I looked you up, and you're, I figured it'd be too easy like, to throw you as a Twitter guy. How going to find me on either one? <laughs> All right, let me ask this one, and then we're going to let Dan ask Dan. Another IRA type of bill in the next three years? Hmm. Yes. I think there's additions that are going to be made. Okay. And the most important question determining your future as a potential repeat podcast guest, will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? I've been living in Houston for a while, so no. Oh, oh, nice to oh, meet I you. I know, I know, exactly. Wait, before we let him go, you had a great draft. The Texans did? Yeah, well, you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> here's where I'm at on the Texans. Sorry, Todd. Um, Nice I'm, I'm yeah. so far down on the Texans that I barely paid any attention to the draft because it hasn't made any difference for now, the last decade. I so, agree with that, but they had a tremendous draft. I know. I may go to a game this season. Mm. Maybe skip yes. season three. Yes. There yeah. we go. It's going to be a right. tough season. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 well, Todd, tougher. this is – <laughs> this is uh, thank you for coming on. Did yep. you were the live audience not too bad for you? This is pretty. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, yeah, it's great meeting you both. I appreciate it, and thank you for uh, the the lightning round and all the questions. So Absolutely, and we'll find uh, we'll find more about decarbon fuse at www.decarbonfuse.com. Perfect. Thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you. Sir. Top of. Excellent. Thanks. Great.